0: Good afternoon, everyone. And uh, welcome to Read Aloud. This week we've got two colleagues from the Research Communications Department who have brought some things that they'd like to share with us. The first is um, Pam frost Porter, and her colleague, Jeff Grabmeyer, is going to follow her. And I'm going to let them introduce their material to you. We do have coffee and tea in the back. Relax and enjoy. Thanks for coming out, everyone.
1: Hello. Um, Jeff and I are science writers at the university, so we both chose books that touch on science or uh, about science. And uh, the first book I'm going to read from is Chaos by James Glick, um, who's a former New York Times reporter. And chaos, well, I'm not sure I should even try to explain what chaos is. Yes? Oh, I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? Ah, much better. Okay. Okay. the first book I'm going to read from is Chaos by James Glick. He's a former New York Times reporter. And I was just saying I, I don't think I should even try to explain what chaos is. I should let his introduction explain what chaos is because I think he does it very well. And uh, even though this is uh, a book that's um, it's very heavy on science and mathematics, it's still um, very readable, and I think the prologue actually pulls you in and makes you want to learn more about that. The police in the small town of Los Alamos, New Mexico, worried briefly in 1974 about a man seen prowling in the dark, night after night, the red glow of his cigarette floating along the back streets. He would pace for hours, heading nowhere in the starlight that hammers down through the thin air of the mesas. The police were not the only ones to wonder. At the National Laboratory, some physicists had learned that their newest colleague was experimenting with 26-hour days, which meant that his waking schedule would slowly roll in and out of phase with theirs. This bordered on strange, even for the theoretical division. In the three decades since J. Robert Oppenheimer chose this unworldly New Mexico landscape for the atomic bomb project, Los Alamos National Laboratory had spread across the expanse of desolate plateau, bringing particle accelerators and gas lasers and chemical plants, thousands of scientists and administrators and technicians, as well as one of the world's greatest concentrations of supercomputers. Some of the older scientists remembered the wooden buildings rising hastily out of the Rimrock in the 1940s, but to most of the Los Alamos staff, young men and women in college style corduroys and work shirts, the first bomb makers were just ghosts. The laboratory's locust of purest thought was the theoretical division, known as T-Division, just as computing was C-Division and weapons was X-Division. More than a hundred physicists and mathematicians worked in T-Division well-paid and free of academic pressures to teach and publish. These scientists had experience with brilliance and with eccentricity. They were hard to surprise. But Mitchell Feigenbaum was an unusual case. He had exactly one published article to his name, and he was working on nothing that seemed to have any particular promise. His hair was a ragged mane, sweeping back from his wide brow in the style of busts of German composers. His eyes were sudden and passionate, When he spoke, always rapidly, he tended to drop articles and pronouns in a vaguely middle European way, even though he was a native of Brooklyn. When he worked, he worked obsessively. When he could not work, he walked and thought, day or night, and night was best of all. The 24-hour day seemed too constraining. Nevertheless, his experiment in personal quasi-periodicity came to an end when he decided he could no longer bear waking to the setting sun, as had to happen every few days. At the age of 29, he had already become a savant among the savants, an ad hoc consultant whom scientists would go to see about any especially intractable problem when they could find him. One evening he arrived at work just as the director of the laboratory, Harold Agnew, was leaving. Agnew was a powerful figure, one of the original Oppenheimer apprentices. He had flown over Hiroshima on an instrument plane that accompanied the Enola Gay, photographing the delivery of the laboratory's first product. I understand you're real smart, Agnew said to Feigenbaum. If you're so smart, why don't you just solve laser fusion? Even Feigenbaum's friends were wondering whether he was ever going to produce any work of his own. As willing as he was to do impromptu magic with their questions, he did not seem interested in devoting his own research to any problem that might pay off. He thought about turbulence in liquids and gases. He thought about time. Did it glide smoothly forward or hop discreetly like a sequence of cosmic motion picture frames? He thought about the eyes' ability to see consistent colors and forms in a universe that physicists knew to be a shifting quantum kaleidoscope. He thought about clouds, watching them from airplane windows until in 1975 his scientific travel privileges were officially suspended on grounds of overuse or from hiking trails above the laboratory. In the mountain towns of the West, clouds barely resemble the sooty, indeterminate low-flying hazes that fill the eastern air. At Los Alamos, in the lee of a great great volcanic caldera, the clouds spill across the sky in random formation, yes, but also non-random, standing in uniform spikes or rolling in regularly furrowed patterns like brain matter. On a stormy afternoon, when the sky shimmers and trembles with the electricity to come, the clouds stand out from 30 miles away, filtering the light and reflecting it, until the whole sky starts to seem like a spectacle staged as a subtle reproach to physicists. Clouds represented a side of nature that the mainstream of physics had passed by, a side that was at once fuzzy and detailed, structured and unpredictable. Feigenbaum thought about such things quietly and unproductively. To a physicist, creating laser fusion was a legitimate problem. Puzzling out the spin and color and flavor of small particles was a legitimate problem. Dating the origin of the universe was a legitimate problem. Understanding clouds was a problem for a meteorologist. Like other physicists, Feigenbaum used an understated, tough guy vocabulary to rate such problems. Such a thing is obvious, he might say, meaning that a result would be understood by any skilled physicist after appropriate contemplation and calculation. Not obvious described work that commanded respect and Nobel Prizes. For the hardest problems, the problems that would not give way without long looks into the universe's bowels, physicists reserved words like deep. In 1974, though few of his colleagues knew it, Feigenbaum was working on a problem that was deep, chaos. Where chaos begins, classical science stops. For as long as the world has had physicists inquiring into the laws of nature, it has suffered a special ignorance about disorder in the atmosphere, in the turbulent sea, in the fluctuations of wildlife populations, in the oscillations of the heart and the brain. The irregular side of nature, the discontinuous and erratic side, these have been puzzles to science, or worse, monstrosities. But in the 1970s, a few scientists in the United States and Europe began to find a way through disorder. They were mathematicians, physicists, biologists, chemists, all seeking connections between different kinds of irregularity. Physiologists found a surprising order in the chaos that develops in the human heart, the prime cause of sudden unexplained death. Ecologists explored the rise and fall of gypsy moth populations. Economists dug out old stock price data and tried a new kind of analysis. The insights that emerged led directly into the natural world, the shapes of clouds, the paths of lightning, The microscopic intertwining of blood vessels, the galactic clustering of stars. When Mitchell Feigenbaum began thinking about chaos at Los Alamos, he was one of a handful of scattered scientists, mostly unknown to one another. A mathematician in Berkeley, California, had formed a a small group dedicated to creating a new study of dynamical systems. A population biologist at Princeton University was about to publish an impassioned plea that all scientists should look at the surprisingly complex behavior lurking in some simple models. A geometer working for IBM was looking for a new word to describe a family of shapes, jagged, tangled, splintered, twisted, fractured, that he considered an organizing principle in nature. A French mathematical physicist had just made the disputatious claim that turbulence in fluids might have something to do with a bizarre, infinitely tangled abstraction that he called a strange attractor a decade later chaos has become shorthand for a fast-growing movement that is reshaping the fabric of the scientific establishment chaos conferences and chaos journals abound government program managers in charge of research money for the military central intelligence agency and the department of energy have put ever greater sums into chaos research and set up special bureaucracies to handle the financing at every major university and every major corporate research center Some theorists allied themselves first with chaos and only second with their nominal specialties. At Los Alamos, a center for nonlinear studies was established to coordinate work on chaos and related problems. Similar institutions have appeared on university campuses across the country. Chaos has created special techniques of using computers and special kinds of graphic images, pictures that capture a fantastic and delicate structure underlying complexity. The new science has spawned its own language, an elegant shop talk of fractals and bifurcations, intermittencies and periodicities, folded towel diffeomorphisms, and smooth noodle maps. These are the new elements of motion, just as in traditional physics, quarks and gluons are the new elements of matter. To some physicists, chaos is a science of process rather than state, of becoming rather than being. Okay, the second book I brought with me is A Biography of Beethoven, uh, The Universal Composer. It's by Edmund Morris, whom you might have heard of for a a biography he wrote of Ronald Reagan. And uh, I think maybe at first you might wonder why I'm reading A Biography of Beethoven, if I'm supposed to be talking about science. But uh, this book actually delves a lot into his psychology, uh, the psychology, I guess you would say, of art, of genius and composing, and also the mathematics of composing. For 40 hours, the snow tumbled over New England, settling up to six feet deep on every city, forest, and frozen river. At the blizzard's height on Tuesday, February 7, 1978, President Carter declared coastal Massachusetts a federal disaster area. After a second record night of snow, the governor ordered all citizens not engaged in relief work to stay home. Interstate 93 ran white as a glacier, its ramps curving into the moraine of downtown Boston. Just when the world seemed about to suffocate, the last flakes fell. But then the snow turned to ice, and the weight of precipitation became unbearable. Power grids snapped. Hospitals switched to emergency supplies. Stores and restaurants stayed dark. Biographical researchers, trapped in digs near Harvard University, found themselves with nothing to eat and nowhere to buy food. Another night of almost total silence came on. It was difficult not to think of entombment. Thursday morning brought sunshine and a sense of life returning. Icicles sliced the light. The first shovelers got to work in front of dorm doorways. Students on skis polled across Harvard Yard. Pedestrians struggled to follow, plunging waist-deep at every step. There was still little noise, only the dry squeak of snow underfoot and an occasional shout. Then some invisible person threw open a second-floor window, mounted a pair of speakers on the sill, and blasted the finale of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony into the crisp air. Nothing was ever so loud, so bright as that C-major fanfare, surging over a blare of trombones with all the force of old faithful. It was Carlos Kleiber's recording with the Vienna Philharmonic, new then, legendary now. Skiers, shovelers, and plungers stood transfixed, After three great leaps, the last requiring an extra beat to discharge all of its sound, the chords subsided, only to gather strength for higher and higher ascents to the crest of the scale and beyond, until geyser-like, they broke into exaltic syncopations. So far, nobody had heard a melody, or any harmonies that could not be blown through a mouth organ, and when a tune finally came, played at maximum volume by three horns, it was close to banal, So why, after the music ended, ten minutes later, with forty-eight thunderous claps of C major, were some of the listeners crying? Of all the great composers, Beethoven is the most enduring in his appeal to dilettantes and intellectuals alike. Bach and Mozart have had their periods of misapprehension; the former marked mocked as passe even in his own lifetime; the latter miniaturized by the Victorians. Handel, in contrast, was giantified but as the composer of Messiah mainly at cost to his operatic achievement. Haydn, Beethoven's teacher, is admired more by connoisseurs than by the general public. Schubert was still being caricatured as an idiot savant long after World War II. Brahms has never gone down well in France. Bruckner is a minority taste outside of the German-speaking world. And Sibelius, who once seemed sure of a seat on Parnassus, has been replaced by the masturbatory Mahler. Beethoven was recognized in his teens as a genius of the First Order. He was less of a prodigy than Mozart or Mendelssohn, but surpassed them in the brightness of his aspirations. From the moment he arrived in Vienna at the age of 21, that city, the capital of the musical world, celebrated him. Princes vied for the honor of putting him up in their palaces. Mozart, just a few years earlier, had to dine below the valets but above the cooks. After Haydn died in 1809, Beethoven, not yet 40, became the world's most famous composer. He remains that almost two centuries later. Climb the mildewed stairway of the most obscure building he ever lived in, and you can be fairly sure of bumping into a Welsh choral society or a party of reverent Japanese. What draws them is Beethoven's universality, his ability to embrace the whole range of human emotion, from dread of death to love of life and to the metaphysics beyond, reconciling all doubts and conflicts in a catharsis of sound. That anonymous broadcaster of the finale of the Fifth Symphony across Harvard Yard after the blizzard of 78 knew just where to drop his needle, the point at which the transition from the C minor Scherzo resolves fortissimo into C major. He also understood, even if his listeners did not, the symbolism of that transition, the most claustrophobic passage in all of music. It begins with a sudden hush, as if a great weight has blocked out light and air. For a moment, all is frozen shock, the strings holding an indeterminate chord, and then an almost inaudible beating of drums is heard. Stifled moans sound in the violins, terrified, fragmentary phrases that try to rise without success. The drum beats, hesitant at first, become a constant throb as if hysteria is building while the moans again try to rise. With agonizing difficulty, they begin to succeed, and the weight overhead seems to lighten airy woodwinds amplify a gathering crescendo joined by trumpets and horns then all restraint is loosened and the whole orchestra breaks free and every hair stands up on your neck. There are countless moments such as this in Beethoven but not one like this. His originality prevents him from repeating himself. At the same time there is a signature quality unmistakable as the hand of Picasso. Radical to begin with Beethoven grew more radical with age. Some of his late works reinvent themselves movement by movement. The string quartet in B-flat, opus 130, traverses more styles in 50 minutes than Wagner did in 50 years. And after finishing it with a stupendous fugue, Beethoven still had enough inspiration left over to write an alternative finale, his last published composition, that has the effect of transforming the whole work in retrospect. The other movements still float in order astern, but they look closer and more companionable, seen from a less lofty masthead. That fugue, by the way, known and feared by chamber musicians as the gross fugue, a breaker of strings and burner of fingertips, was Igor Stravinsky's favorite quartet movement. There can be no better testimony to Beethoven's timelessness than the fact that Stravinsky, iconoclast supreme, measured his own modernism against something written in 1825, quote, this absolutely contemporary piece of music that will be contemporary forever. I love it beyond any other. Heard today for the first or 101st time, the gross fugue still overwhelms with the sheer brutality of its sound. For more than a quarter of an hour, violins, viola, and cello squawk and scream like frenzied vultures. One can understand the rumors around Vienna that Beethoven, famous for his eccentricity, had at last gone mad. Yet even as audiences recoiled from the fugue, they had to account for the fact that it was paired with a slow cavatina or singing movement of indescribable beauty. If a confused brain produced the one, what all-comprehending heart poured out the other? Contrast and conflict are essential characteristics of Beethoven's art. Throughout his life, he struggled against epic odds and prevailed with enormous courage. The odds were at various times social, Sexual, psychotic, and political, but two especially tormented him, ill health and loneliness. His muscularity and ruddy complexion disguised the former, at least when he was young, and the latter was self-inflicted. He fled the palaces of his patrons, preferring to pay his own rent and compose in peace. Domestically helpless, he moved no fewer than 80 times and lived in prosperous squalor with history's most notorious piss pot under his grand piano. Yet he was never short of the acolytes and enablers, would you like to sleep with my wife, that eminence attracts. None of them was privy to the full extent of Beethoven's bodily and mental sufferings. Two famous documents, written in secrecy and discovered only after his death, make this clear, the Heligenstadt Testament of 1802 and the Immortal Beloved Letter of 1812. In the former, he revealed, or rather filed away in a secret drawer, the most awful fact that a musician can face that he was going deaf. He was 31 years old and had long been tormented by buzzing and whistlings in his ears. At first, he hoped they might respond to medicine. When they did not, he had to live with them. By 1808, he could no longer hide his condition. Anyone who heard him conduct or play the piano, desperately pounding the keys, could tell that Beethoven now lived in a sonic world of his own. Ten years later, people wanting to converse with him had to write their remarks on paper. Beethoven's last greatest works were conceived in what George Eliot calls the roar which lies on the other side of silence. His equally anguished love letter, addressed but never mailed to the immortal beloved, has lost none of its poignancy now that Maynard Solomon has revealed the identity of the woman involved. One senses Beethoven's acceptance that flesh was frail and music too insatiable a mistress for him ever to marry, even if the beloved had been free to consummate their relationship. In any case, the most frustrated of all his desires was for a boy. Psychobiographers have seized upon his struggle to win possession of his nephew, Karl, as proof that Beethoven was an incestuous homosexual. But Carl was his legal ward, and none of the evidence in court proceedings surrounding the boy's custody suggests an erotic charge to the relationship. Demonstrably and pathetically, Beethoven wanted a son to bear his name and inherit his fortune. The story of that five-year litigation is an ugly one, and most of its ugliness derives from Beethoven's determination to win, no matter what pain it inflicted on the boy or on the boy's bewildered mother. Victorious at last, he sent Karl off to school, much as he dispatched a completed manuscript and turned his fur- furious energy on the Missa Solemnis. Listening to that work today, to the seraphic Benedictus, for example, with its violin solo floating like incense over the tenor melody, one is hard put to reconcile such tenderness with the fact that Beethoven was misanthropic and manipulative, greedy, quick to lie and cheat, so suspicious of other people's motives that he was prey to paranoid delusions. But then one has to take into contradictory account his often uproarious good humor and generosity, his Kantian ethics, his democratic pride, and the general conclusion among all who knew him and were hurt by him, that he was, beyond cliche, superhuman, with all the excesses that superhumanity implies, too much vigor, too much aggression, too much talent, and too little time to work them all off. In the event, he had to settle for 56 years. It was a life of prodigious labor, considering his natural gifts. When Beethoven improvised at the piano, he superated with melody. He could go on for hours, reducing his listeners to tears, while he, never a sentimentalist, eyed them with amused contempt. Artists are fiery, he said. They do not weep. Yet he lacked Mozart's ability to transfer perfection straight to paper as fast as the pen could fly. When forced to, he could compose quickly, but the results were often not good. Great music to him was a proper fusion of inspiration and industry. And industry implied the most logical improvement of every last structural detail. If he had to choose between the charm of a seductive tune and a figuration built out of integral coefficients, mathematical beauty won out every time. Oddly enough, arithmetic confused him. He never learned how to multiply or divide and had such difficulty with simple household sums as to suggest dyslexia. Here and there in his letters, 14 comes out as 41, and 1808 as 1088. Yet again, contradictions abound when discussing Beethoven. He was a rationalist who took delight in solving almost impossible problems of counterpoint. The fugue that ends... The hammer Sonata takes a gigantic subject of 105 notes and proceeds to augment it, invert it, and even play it backward like a tape rewound, sometimes all three processes going at once, the musical equivalent of trigonometry. Such achievements put Beethoven in the same class as music's other ranking intellectuals, Bach, Brahms, and Webern, and yet none of these three could have written Fidelio he had besides a mastery of musical architecture that was as instinctual as it was innovative. Again the possibility of dyslexia arises. Some orthographically challenged people have an almost cubist ability to visualize planes and dimensions from many different angles at once. Beethoven's sound structures are full of disproportionate rooms and inner voids with surprise changes of level and windows full of sky, but they always balance out as total buildings no matter how large their size. Not for nothing was Beethoven the favorite composer of Frank Lloyd Wright and Louis Kahn. The paradox of Beethoven's bigness is that it is not always measurable in time or decibels. He could and did compose symphonies and sonatas of unprecedented length, yet he was also a miniaturist. Some of his piano bagatelles, known as chips from the master's workshop, last little more than a minute. One is over in just nine seconds. Chips they may be, but hold them up to the light and they glint with precious metal. Nor are they fragmentary in form. His spatial sense was microscopic as well as telescopic. With equal sureness he built both cells and cathedrals of sound. The last bagatelle of Opus 119 is set in the same key as the Adagio of the Ninth Symphony and it too is an endless flow of melody rising to a serene height before resolving on the simplest of cadences. It spans just 22 measures to the symphony movement's 166. Yet for the short while it lasts, it seems, in Shelley's language, to stain the white radiance of eternity. Whoever chose to color the no less radiant whiteness of Harvard Yard with the fanfare uh, after the big blizzard knew, as did the planners of Winston Churchill's funeral or 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 the witness to the fall of the Berlin Wall, that there are moments when only Beethoven will do. No other composer could have achieved so instant and so communal a reaction among young skiers, probably unable to name a single other of his works, if indeed they could even name him. Something bigger than personal identity, bigger than weather, bigger than mere melody and harmony, woke them to the promise of the morning and the strength of their bodies. The largest mind in musical history spoke to them in 1978, as it did when the boy Beethoven made his debut in Cologne 200 years before.
2: Thanks for coming. My name is uh, Jeff Grabmeyer. As uh, you know, I do work with Pam. And uh, my selections are also science and nature related. The, the first one even mentions chaos as well. Um, the first one is actually an essay that I wrote uh, called Storms of Life, which is uh, about my experiences with weather in my life. Uh, this is available in the book Soul of the Sky, explaining the human side of weather along with a lot more famous authors as well talking about it. (coughs) When I was four years old a monstrous tornado rumbled through my neighborhood and blew away my house. Eight years later I decided I wasn't going to be a victim again so I took up weather forecasting. It made no matter that there were trained meteorologists with advanced degrees and sophisticated equipment to do that for me. My experience with the Twister proved to me that meteorologists were no better at predicting the weather than I was at predicting the changing moods of my younger brother. After I begged my parents for a few weeks, they broke down and bought me a weather kit. It was a Mr. Wizard type of setup with a rain collector, wind speed gauge, barometer, thermometer, and a booklet on forecasting. The instruments were made of flimsy plastic, and the book made forecasting seem as easy as getting candy from Grandma. But I couldn't have been happier if Dad had given me a genuine National Weather Service laboratory. I felt powerful, in control. I poured over over the kit's forecasting book for the next few days. It was exciting to learn about the different cloud formations and the specialized meteorological terms. Soon I was dropping terms like occluded front and temperature inversion into my everyday conversation. After a week of intensive study, I was sure I had what it took to forecast the weather, so I set up the equipment in the backyard and launched my new career. I took the job seriously. I'd even leave the outfield in the seventh inning of my little league game and run home to check the measurements. Twice each day, I carefully recorded in a small notebook the barometric pressure, wind speed and direction, cloud formations, rainfall, and current conditions. The book taught me what to look for, Things things like high wispy cirrus clouds that are bearers of good weather, or cumulus clouds in the summertime that could quickly develop into thunderheads. Each evening, I hand printed the forecast for my hometown of Toledo, Ohio. My parents proudly displayed it on the refrigerator door next to my brother's schoolwork. I only kept up my forecast for a few months. It wasn't that I was doing a bad job, I was just getting bored. I was tired of forecasting your everyday, run-of-the-mill weather. My fantasy is that that one day I would be checking the conditions and suddenly realize that another tornado was going to tear through my neighborhood in minutes. In my daydream, I would run door-to-door, alerting my neighbors just in time for them to seek safety. But the only real service I could provide was to warn the neighborhood housewives of rain so they could get the laundry off the clotheslines. The few exciting times were the occasional summer thunderstorms. I knew that when a tornado was near, the barometric pressure drops dramatically in just minutes. So at the first rumblings of thunder, I raced to my bedroom and sat in front of the barometer, watching closely for signs of coming calamity. But there was no more calamity. If only I would have had my weather kit eight years earlier, I thought to myself. April 11, 1965, the day the infamous Palm Sunday tornado swaggered through my neighborhood like a 200-foot bully, killing 16 and injuring 70. The same day, 51 twisters raised hell in the Midwest, taking 256 lives. That Palm Sunday twister is my first childhood memory. I was four years old, and I can recall nothing about our house until the night it was blown apart. My memory begins a little after 9 o'clock that night when I was awakened by a terrific boom and then a gathering roar. Later, I would hear the sound described as the bellowing of a million mad bulls. I didn't know anything about balls, but to me it sounded like the roar of the thing that occasionally haunted my dreams. All kids have their own personal dream monsters, but my thing was a hundred-foot version of Godzilla with rows of teeth and scaly green skin. Mom and Dad were sitting in the kitchen when they heard the clamor. My father opened the back door and saw, etched by the near-constant lightning, the mad dance of the Twister. I was sitting on the edge of my bed, confused and scared, when my parents rushed in and grabbed my brother and me. Just as Mom grabbed my brother, the window above his crib shattered. We didn't have a basement, so Mom and Dad headed for a door in the floor of the garage that led to a tiny crawl space under the house. They ran down the pitch-black hallway. It was as if the thing was chasing us, and we were trying to escape. Our legs felt like they were made of lead. Suddenly, the thing was hovering over us, ripping apart the house. Dad fell on top of me and Mom on my brother. Everything we owned whirled around us as if controlled by poltergeists. I closed my eyes, protected underneath my father, and wondered what would happen when it caught us. But as quickly as it came, it was gone. As the war faded, we stood up in silence. Surprisingly, none of us had suffered anything more severe than scratches and bruises. We looked up, up, up from the rubble that had been our home and into the turbulent sky. Our roof was gone. But we still had part of a roof it belonged to a neighbor and now lay crumpled in our living room in my bedroom an asphalt shingle had been hurled with such force that it was embedded in a wooden closet door we walked aimlessly around the debris as if we were waiting for the number 10 bus a few days after the tornado we moved into a mobile home in our backyard while workers cleaned up the rubble and built a new home on the foundation of the old each time a storm passed i gazed out my bedroom window in the trailer and nervously eyed what was left of my old house. I thought a lot more about the weather than most four-year-olds, trying to make sense of what happened to me. At that young age, I dealt with my fear on a superstitious level. I continued to think of the weather as malevolent, unpredictable, mysterious, and unknowable. I wanted to know how I could trust a world where even a cloud could get to me. As I grew older and went to school, I began to realize that the best way to overcome superstition was with knowledge. That's why I think I wanted a weather kit and why I read so much on meteorology. To an extent, it worked. I felt somewhat better when I learned about the hot and cold air masses and all the other forces that cause tornadoes. But other things I read didn't fit the neat scientific theories, or at least I thought they didn't. The freakish wonders caused by tornadoes and the almost deliberate way they spared some lucky souls seemed to fit more with my old superstitious views of the weather than with my developing scientific ones. I once read about a twister that hit St. Louis in 1896, which thrust a pine 2 x 4 through a solid iron wall five-eighths of an inch thick. I knew that tornadoes could produce winds up to 300 miles per hour, but so, such a terrific feat still sent shivers up my spine. Twisters seemed to consciously spare people who by all odds should have been injured or killed. A family in Madison, Indiana, sought shelter in a bedroom closet when a tornado struck April 3, 1974. Every part of their house was knocked to the ground, except the closet where they hid. Tornadoes seem to have highly developed senses of humor, too. During a twister in El Dorado, Kansas on Janu- er, June 10, 1958, a woman was blown through a window and carried 60 feet. When she landed, she found a broken copy of the record Stormy Weather next to her. <laughs> Real scientists might scoff, but to me it seemed tornadoes were playing pranks on the solid, immutable laws of nature. Tornadoes that destroyed houses and left closets standing, threw people in the air and gently sat them down, and hurled objects through steel walls, seemed more like malevolent demons than meteorological phenomena. When I started studying tornadoes, I had no idea that praying for the weekend and staying out of cars might be ways of protecting myself. But one scientific study seemed to suggest that Researchers found that significantly fewer tornadoes occurred on the weekend than on weekdays. They speculated that auto traffic created little vortexes that, added together, could help account for some tornadoes. That knowledge didn't help ease my fears. If that were true, I I felt I might as well make offerings to Aeolus, the Greek god of wind, and take heed in science. By this time, I was too old to believe in the thing, and science didn't seem to offer the explanations I craved. But this Eolus guy had a long history in literature, so maybe it was he who visited me one summer day when I was 17 years old. It happened when I was sailing an 18-foot sailboat with my father and brother out on Maumee Bay on the west end of Lake Erie. In the west, black clouds appeared and then quickly covered the sky as if they had foamed over a boiling pot. My father quickly headed the boat toward shore, but within minutes, Eolus had blown the bay into a frothy white frenzy. All around us, sailboats capsized in the strong winds. We soon gave up any hope of reaching the mainland and my father headed the boat for a small island about a half mile away. But we knew that we had to drop the sails or we would capsize too. With no other choice, my father gave the helm to my brother and told him to steer toward the island. Dad left the safety of the cockpit and crawled onto the front deck to take down the smaller of the two sails but he slipped on the rain-slicked deck and fell into the churning water. Luckily, as he fell, he managed to grab onto the forestay of the boat. Meanwhile, I struggled to release the cable that held up the large mainsail. After a pitched battle, I finally pulled the cable free and the sail dropped. The boat slowed and we drifted to shore. After this second close call with the weather, I began to wonder how many lives I had and how many Mother Nature was going to take away. For all I had learned, I still hadn't found a way to protect myself from the weather. And I still hadn't found a fail safe way to know exactly what the weather was going to do. In many ways my search was just a variation of one undertaken by many 19th century scientists who helped to find a set of scientific principles that would allow them to predict everything that was going to happen in the universe. That possibility was dashed in 1926 when a German scientist came up with the uncertainty principle. The principle states that we can predict future events exactly only if we can perfectly measure the present state of the universe. But the universe has an unpredictable random element that makes perfect measurement and prediction impossible. (coughs) The weather takes the uncertainty principle and dumps it on us like a surprise six-inch snowfall. Weather Weather constantly reminds us that we are subject to random forces beyond our control. We are reminded that the universe was born in chaos and will end that way. Billions of years from now, we hope. Even our primitive ancestors understood the connection between weather and chaos. The Apache Indians believed that before the world was created, there existed only darkness, water, and cyclone. For an Apache, seeing a tornado must have been like seeing the world before the dawn of creation. I know how they felt. When the tornado hit my house, I had my own glimpse of the earth, as it was millions of years ago, when life existed only in a primordial soup. I can imagine mountains thrusting violently from the surface, seas boiling from the heat of the Earth, and great storms raging across a desolate, empty landscape. Sometimes I can imagine chaos on even grander scale, black holes sucking all nearby matter, even light, into their cores, stars bursting into supernovas and spewing debris that will someday form new planets and new suns. Nothing seems simple anymore or even possible to understand. But despite all that is random and unpredictable, I still haven't lost the yearning of that 12-year-old kid with a weather kit. Something keeps me looking for order in my own little corner of the universe. I'm going to read one or two essays from an author named Sam Keene. It's from a book called Sightings, Extraordinary Encounters with Ordinary Birds. Uh, I am a bird watcher, and... uh, before you all run away screaming. These aren't just about bird watching. These are uh, Sam Keen is actually a, a philosopher, and uh, <clears throat> he, he tends to take the sighting of a bird as a, a reason to, to kind of ponder, kind of like I did in, in my essay, the, the Nature of the Universe. The uh, first essay is called Sparrows, Sapsuckers, and Rattlesnakes, The Commonwealth of Sentient Beings. In my young mind, sparrows fell into two categories, the uncommon and precious, and the common and expendable. To the amateur eye, most sparrows are are simply basic brown birds. Because they look so much alike, stripped, streaked, spotted, and generally tweety they are hard to distinguish from one another. On my expeditions, I would frequently see a small brown blur in a bush, which would disappear before I could study its markings to determine its identity. So I never became a connoisseur of sparrows, although I was often delighted by the lyric singing of white-crowned and song sparrows. English sparrows were definitely common, uninteresting, and a nuisance. An undifferentiated undifferentiated horde, they invaded farms and inner cities and displaced better birds. They nested in moths, in the eaves of ordinary houses, barns, and vine-covered public buildings filling the air with their continuous chirping and covering sidewalks with their droppings. Store owners along the main street periodically hired a local stormtrooper armed with a shotgun who went from store to store before business hours to blast colonies of sparrows and pile the bodies on the margins of the sidewalk for the garbage man. Being a fan of the colorful, the exotic, and the rare, I believe that scarlet tanagers or the interesting sparrows like the black-throated, the golden-crowned, or the lake sparrow should be protected but basic brown ones were expendable. They belonged to the same categories of enemies of higher culture as starlings, which traveled in gangs like Hell's Angels and were known to augment their daily diet with eggs stolen from other birds' nests, or cowbirds that, in in imitation of the jet-sending rich, laid their eggs in some other birds' nests, forcing the host to be a surrogate mother. More than once I'd come upon the hanging nest of a diminutive red-eyed vireo filled to overflowing with a ravenous baby cowbird, while the ground beneath was littered with the corpses of virile fledglings that had either starved to death or been pushed from the nest. As a budding ornithologist, I did not object to the policy of extermination of lesser species. I even furthered it in my own modest way. Like most boys in the pre-television South, I went through the slingshot stage, which came before the era of the BB gun and the 22 and felt it was my right and duty to practice my marksmanship on small moving things. A forked stick, two strips from an old inner tube, a bit of leather, and a few smooth pebbles were all I needed for big game hunting. After a lot of practice, I was a good enough shot to bag sparrows and starlings and to terrorize chickens and strange dogs that wandered into our yard. One day in the front yard, while working on my marksmanship to avoid mowing the lawn, An anonymous bird flashed through the sky over my head. Without aiming, I let loose a missile in in its general direction, and to my surprise, it fell dead at my feet. I was horrified to realize it was a yellow-bellied sapsucker, an exotic bird that I had never seen before. I picked up the lifeless bundle, caressed its yellow-gold breast with my finger, and felt deep shame for killing something so rare and beautiful. After that, I was never able to kill for sport. Although I had no love for the colonies of English sparrows, I came to respect the bare fact of their livingness. I understood that the great commandment to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God must be translated into the discipline of practicing reverence for all life. I was forced to recognize that all members of the Commonwealth, all species, rare or common, shared an unconditional will to live, which is the divine spirit within us, standing or kneeling in the presence of the mystery of death and the miracle of life, I had carelessly extinguished. I felt that ultimately there was no distinction among sparrows, sapsuckers, and me. I owed reverence, respect, and restraint to all. Holy happenings don't always involve lovely birds, beautiful sunsets, or lions lying down with lambs, however. It may happen in an encounter with a creature from the dark side of the force. This spring, I came upon the most awesome rattlesnake I had ever seen. A full four feet long, thick as my wrist, and dark green at the head, tapering to lime green by mid-length. Only the last 12 inches before the rattles had the dark crisscrossed lines against a tan background that are typical of rattlesnakes. Feeling both fear and fascinations, I sat down at a safe distance and settled in to observe. Our eyes engaged. Nobody moved. As we remained in our silent encounter, my fear was gradually replaced by a sense of comfortable familiarity. For an eternal moment, I lost my habitual anthropocentric prejudice and found myself empathetically united with the rattlesnake. I was no longer a superior being, but instead a member of a family of sentient beings, all of whom love their way of life no less than I love mine. As I write this, I can almost hear the sneers and criticism as though one could have a revelation by viper. What a ridiculous romantic notion. Modern normal people don't see symbols in snakes. In defense of the viper, I suggest that the goddess religions and the healing cult of Asclepius, both far older than Christianity, were wise to recognize the serpent as a messenger between the divinities of the underworld and the heavenly gods. Who better than a creature that yearly sheds its skin to teach us the gospel of the universal cycle of birth, death, and renewal. We are accustomed to the old metaphor of heavenly angels with feathered wings bringing us divine messages, but our age requires dark angels to remind us of the wisdom of the earth. Just the fact that I am amazed to see a wild snake in this paved and manicured world is a vivid reminder of how far we are are from realizing that we are all a part of a single ecosystem. In our time, acid rain and deforestation are symptoms of the disease of human hubris that will be punished by plague, famine, and the extinction of many species unless we change our ways. Count on it. My rattlesnake was such a thonic angel, an awesome creature who reminded me that we thrive or perish as members of a single sacred commonwealth. It is foolish to hear in the voice of the serpent an echo of a wandering prophet who taught us that we are all citizens of the kingdom of God. The the task of authentic religion is not to create a biography of God, but to remind us to tread reverently on the humus, humus and to show compassion to all sentient beings. Any entity, person, or event may be sacramental, whether a dead sapsucker, a living rattlesnake, or the prophets of old. Another uh, sh- short essay, also by the same author, is entitled "The Wood Thrush: An Enchanting Echo." <clears throat> if you are vigilant, you may see a wood thrush in the woods of Tennessee at almost any time of day. You can identify the species by its elegant dress. Think of a well-turned-out English gentleman of the old school. The bird's ground is tawny, passing into cinnamon brown on its back and shoulders, giving way to an olive olive-graved tail. It wears a contrasting polka dot vest the color of clotted cream sprinkled liberally with blueberries. At high noon, the thrush hops around in low bushes and seems to have only modest ambitions and domestic concerns. as different from a brash blue jay as you can imagine. It quietly goes about feeding on a balanced diet of protein, ants, beetles, grasshoppers, caterpillars, and fruits, frost grapes, blackberries, and wild cherries. Often as I would be gathering multicolored rocks with indecipherable hieroglyphic markings from a creek, or searching for a pine tree with chewable amber pitch oozing from its multilayered bark, I would look up to get my bearings and be startled to see a thrush sitting on a nest just above eye level. I could see that thrushes were accomplished architects and builders. They chose a site where the nest would be well supported in the crotch of a sapling, the same spot I would have built a treehouse. The foundation of the nest was constructed by inserting twigs, grass, and leaves into a matrix of wet mud, which dried to form a strong superstructure. The plush decor was made of soft grasses and bits of moss. Sometimes the finished dwelling would be decorated with pieces of ribbons or paper scavenged from the detritus left by humankind, although the nest offered both domestic security and creature comfort to its inhabitants. Whenever I came on a nest, I knew the rule, look but don't touch. Yet it was my duty as a budding ornithologist to make a careful examination of the state of affairs. If I found that a cowbird had deposited her eggs, forcing forcing the thrush to become a nanny at the expense of her own young, I might remove the offending white-spotted eggs, leaving only the smallish greenish-blue ones. It wasn't until twilight that the thrush changed from domestic diva to shaman. From somewhere far away, a single note from its throat like a bell calling me to matins, stopped me in my tracks. Suddenly I was dumbstruck and forgot that I was supposed to be hurrying to the opening in the fence, leaving the woods, and crossing Court Street in order to get home in time for dinner. I stood riveted to the spot, my ears strained to follow the enchanting sound until it disappeared into silence. The song of the wood thrush, or bellbird, bird, is sometimes known as so haunting that bird lovers have gone to extremes to describe it. In Birds of America, it is variously expressed as sounding like the opening of whoever's invitation to the dance, the sweetly solemn thought of Handel's Largo, Faust's beautiful appeal to Margaret in the garden. But not many birders have tried to understand the particular nature of the haunting. The thrush's song belongs to a family of experiences that usher us into the threshold where sound trails off into silence, time disappears into timelessness, and the known world is engulfed by the great mystery. The family includes the reverberating echo of a temple bell that dwindles off into the void, the polyphonic chanting of Tibetan monks that merges into an endless communal chorus, the electric interval between the crash of thunder and the flash of lightning, the awful emptiness when the exhalation of a dying person is not followed by an inspiration. The deep sigh and profound calm that comes in meditation when the mind finally stops chattering. The timeless moment before sleep or after awakening when we enter a dream world in which it seems perfectly reasonable that we should fly, change gender, gender, or simultaneously be ourselves and our parents. In these threshold moments, the spirit slips between the synapses of the mind. The normal illusion that there is nothing beyond the tyrannical march of profane time is dispelled and we have a brief intimation of eternity and awareness of sacred time. In these pregnant voids we come to understand the limit of our comprehension. We gain a tacit knowledge that our modes of experiencing time and the world are nothing more than the mechanisms, categories, and paradigms created by our limited minds. Like monarch butterflies bind on their migrations to low altitudes our wings will not carry us into the vast regions of outer space the proper name for this experience of unknowing is not mysticism but wisdom when socrates was told that the oracle of delphi said he was the wisest man in greece he replied that it could only mean that he knew what he did not know wisdom arises from the certain knowledge of our ignorance and it teaches us that we dwell within a small circle of light surrounded by an immense mystery. According to tradition, the owl, the symbol of Athena, the goddess of wisdom, spread its wings only with the arrival of dusk. Wisdom is the paradoxical art of seeing in the dark. There are no wood thrushes in the sparsely wooded area of California where I live now, but there are great horned owls aplenty, and when they begin their low, uncanny hooting just after dusk, I am transported back to an earlier time when I stood quietly at the threshold, listening to the thrush's invitation to even song, and heard a faint echo of the silent music of the spheres. Over the years, the thrush's shaman song has gradually transformed me into an enchanted agnostic, unknowing, amazed. Let's hear it again for Pam Gordon, too, here.
0: Thanks to both um, Jeff and Pam for those wonderful readings. I feel like I've been in a tornado by a volcano, and I always love to go birding, so thank you so much for that and and for taking time out of your busy schedules to read for us. Thanks to all of you for coming out. Um, This is our last program for the quarter, and we'll be returning... um, I believe it's April 9th. If you've ever been to a Naked Sunfish Read Aloud, I assume you'll come to this one because we have the popular e-magazine contributors coming to do one of their programs for us. It'll include music, some avant-garde poetry, and you never know what else. So thanks again. Good luck with your finals, everybody. (laughs) And we'll see you next month.